welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Our Bible reading is taken from the book of Mark chapter 2. I read it all the way from Mark chapter 2 to Mark chapter 3 to 6. Um, at the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond back by saying, thanks be to God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into synagogue, and a man with shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn heart, said to the man, stretch out your hands. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Somebody asked me why I'm wearing native today. And I said, I'm trying to identify with the old men in our church. Uh, you want me to give you examples? I have time. Like Pastor Femi. Like Femi Akinware. Because of what Olumide did to me just now. Like Olumide. <laughs> but really, the beautiful thing about the church is that Christ actually identifies with all of us, no matter what we are going through. All right, and so that's why we can always call the Bible says we do not have an eye priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus understands what it feels like to be like you. Amen. All right, so let, can we just pray together before we? Oh Lord, we thank you because you understand. <laughs> We thank you because you're not like all those other gods that do not get it. You get it. You get us. When we are worried, when we are anxious, you get it. When we are hungry, when we are thirsty, you get it. And so, Lord, we thank you. We also thank you because you're not a God that just gets it. You're a God that can do something about our problems. And Lord, ultimately, you do something about our problems by sending your word. So Lord Jesus, as your word goes forth today, help us to receive it. Open our hearts. Let our souls awake at the sound of your beautiful words in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your answer prayers. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen, amen. All right. Um, so in case you're worshiping with us for the first time, my name is Tommy Olarawaju. I'm one of the guys on the preaching team. All right. Um, 
I always like to say, I'm actually happy to be bringing the word of God to you. I might be nervous, but I'm happy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so when this series introducing the Son of God, introducing the Son of God, and um, we took a break last week um, on Easter Sunday, and we pastor preached on Easter sermon, but now we are back into um, the series, Introducing the Son of God. And the whole idea of behind introducing the Son of God is this. We believe that the Bible... Um, the Gospels really, the Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present Jesus in certain ways, record certain things that he says concerning himself, and those things have implications for us. It has implications for how we respond to God, it has implications for how we respond to people, and it has implications for how we respond to ourselves. Can I say that again? It has implications for how we respond to God, how we respond to people, and how we respond to ourselves. Now, one of the things that Jesus actually called himself, Jesus called himself lots of things. One of the things that Jesus called himself is or was the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath, right? And that's why we started with someone, simply, the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Um, okay, let's just, I'll just give heads up on one thing, one very, very important thing. Um, today will be very, very theological. All right, so um, put on your thinking caps, all right, and let's enjoy the word of God together. I'm just saying that right now. Then you'll be like, ah, to me, it's not, uh, it's theological. We're just opening scriptures today. Um, if you live long enough, you definitely have argued with somebody in your life. Argument is pretty normal. You know, in fact, some people will even say that arguments can be good. When I was having premarital counseling with Pastor Moses, right? Anytime we come to counseling, he would say, Did you argue? We would say, No, he would say, Are you fine? <laughs> Arguments are not just normal. Sometimes they can be good. I have been arguing all my life. You know why? Uh, I'm the first of three, and um, the age difference between me and the second born is less than two years. So she doesn't recognize authority, really. That's. that's and so every chance she gets, she argues and argues and argues. Argument is normal. However, I, do not, I, I mean, I've been arguing all my life, but I don't like arguing. And I'll tell you why. You see, I'm not as sharp as most people. You know what I mean by sharp? No one we are arguing to win an argument. It's not about whether what you're saying is right or wrong. It's can you present that point really, really fast? And I don't know how to do it. Right. So when I'm arguing with my friend, this is what happens. I end up saying at a point, I just say, okay, fair point. Not because the point is fair. I just don't know what to say. All right. This is the most annoying part. Two weeks later, I'm probably having my bath, doing something totally unrelated. <laughs> you all can relate to this. <laughs> and that thing will just pop. I'd be like, ah! This would have killed him. But now you can't send it because you look as if you are petty. You need, you need to, you know, hold your dignity and stuff. Right. Arguments are normal. Let me tell you the way this works out in my marriage. My wife is sharp. I, on the other hand, I'm not. So she has this way when she's arguing, like, it's terrible. Point one, point two, point three, point four. You'll be like, I, I, can't, I can't respond to all this. So when we are arguing physically together, she will win. All right. But if we are chatting, ah, I will win. You know why? Once she sends that point, I'll go and think. You know, like five minutes, just. Baby, what are you doing? No, I'm just really doing something. I'll be, I'll respond soon, I'll respond soon. Then I'll give that response. I always win. When it's on chat, because I have enough time to think about what I'm, what I'm about to say. You see. Again, arguments are normal. In fact, many times, the reason is why we argue is not because we disagree with what the person has said. We disagree with how the person said what they said. So many times, arguments are not about the truth. They're really about tone. Right? Or maybe you're at this point, maybe you've had this kind of thing before. When somebody comes to meet you, they're about, they're about to say something, and they say, Shola, why did you put this cup on this table? And you say, Shebi, you too, you also did the same thing last week. Why are you arguing? The issue is not truth. The issue is, do you even have a right to tell me what I'm supposed to do? So argument, many times, is not about truth. It's about authority. Do you have a right to tell me to do this thing? Authority is different from power. You see, power is the ability to do. Authority is the right to do it. 
So many times when we are arguing, we are not arguing because we disagree with what the person has said. We are arguing because we disagree with that person's right to say what they've said. And that is actually what is happening with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get into lots of arguments with Jesus. Not because they disagree with what he is doing, but do you have a right to do what you're actually doing? That's the issue. It's an issue of authority. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus gets into lots of arguments with the Pharisees and the point, in fact, the issue starting from chapter 1. When Jesus starts his ministry, Jesus used this guy that was, delivers this guy that was possessed in Mark chapter 1, verse 25 to 27. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly to the demon. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, he even gives others impure spirits and they obey him. The issue in Mark is an issue of authority. In fact, if you've been paying attention to what we've been teaching for a while, in Mark chapter 2, there's a particular time when some friends wanted to bring their paralyzed friends to Jesus and they couldn't get to him because there was a crowd around him. And they dropped him through the ceiling and Jesus looked at him and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees were like, no. Only God can forgive sins. And what Jesus said, he said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He then says, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. The issue in Mark chapter 2 is issue of authority. Do you have a right to say or do the things you're actually saying or doing? After that, we get to the point where Jesus is eating with Matthew or Levi, who is a tax collector and who is a sinner. They came to meet him again. They said, no, no, no. According to the law, you're supposed to be eating with those that are righteous. Jesus says, I have come. For the sinners, not for the righteous, for the sick, not for those that are healthy. Jesus is basically saying, I have authority to determine those that come to sit at my table and the criteria through which they come. I have authority. They come again, they are arguing with him about fasting. Why are your disciples not fasting? Jesus says again, he said, when the bridegroom is with them, there's no reason to fast. What was he doing? I have authority to pause this particular practice. And when I go to fast, I have authority to tell them to resume it. And then we get to the last part in our text here. They are arguing about the Sabbath. And Jesus then says to them at the end of verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28, he says, the Son of Man is what? Lord, note, even of the Sabbath. That is what? I am Lord of the Sabbath too. That is what you should be noticing is how Jesus has been Lord over all the things that have been coming before. I am Lord even of this Sabbath. I am Lord of this one too. The issue is authority. Jesus spoke as somebody that had authority. Jesus acted as somebody that had authority. In fact, what the people said concerning Jesus in the book of Matthew, they said he didn't speak like the Pharisees. He didn't speak like the scribes. He spoke as somebody that had authority. He spoke as somebody that had the right to say what he was saying. And so the, disciples, and so the Pharisees come to meet Jesus in the text. I mean, they come to meet Jesus and they're saying, your disciples are walking through the grain and they are plucking and they are eating. Meaning what? They are harvesting. And so they are breaking the law. Now, Jesus' response to them is what is very, very interesting. All right. Jesus, in responding to them, starts to talk about David. Now, Jesus does that sometimes, right? You think he's supposed to go this way and he just goes on his own. He's Lord. He has authority to do that. All right. So now, he tells them the story of David. The story he told them was this. So one time, Saul, a king, David was anointed to be king, but he wasn't king yet. So Saul wanted to kill him because he was jealous. And so David was running from, well, pillar to post. And then he got to a point where he was hungry and there was no food. And it was at the tabernacle. And then there was this bread. It's not normal bread. It's called the bread of the presence. Right? Because the bread is really before the presence. And only the priest actually had access to it. David came and he said what? He said... Give me that bread. Let me eat it. So they were accusing Jesus and they were accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus then tells them the story of somebody else that broke a particular law. It sounds like Jesus is doing that thing we usually do. Shebi David also did it and he didn't complain. Why are, you, why are you coming to meet me? So it begins to seem 
as if Jesus is using his authority to endorse the breaking of the law or to endorse the discarding of the law. But we all know that this cannot be true because Jesus didn't break any law. Jesus didn't sin at all. The Bible says no iniquity was found in him. He was perfect and he was holy. So what, how, how was Jesus relating to the law? What was his relationship to the law? How did he see the law? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, co- I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, my authority doesn't mean we discard the law. You see, you must have heard certain people, certain preachers preach to you, and they are saying, oh, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, so the law is bad. No, the law was not bad. In the book of Psalms, the Bible says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Paul, quoting Romans chapter 7, says, the law is good. So there was no reason for him to, in quote, abolish it. What Jesus said was, no, I've not come to abolish it, I've come to do what? Fulfill it. And when you hear the word fulfill, what comes to your mind? So Jesus said he's here to fulfill the law. That's what was he saying? That the law had a prophetic edge to it. That the law had a thing about it that it was pointing to something else that was outside of it. The law had a prophetic edge to it. And so Jesus then comes to say, I have come to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, hold on. When we say Jesus came to fulfill the law, what exactly do we mean? See, there are so many theological things we throw out in church here. Just came to fulfill the law. You say, Amen. What does it mean? Think about it. What exactly does it mean? I actually discovered that I actually didn't know. What exactly did it mean for Jesus to claim to have authority? What exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of the Sabbath? See, when I was told I was going to be preaching um, this text, I felt I knew what I was going to say, honestly. I, and this thing happens if you ever had to preach somewhere. You just see the text and you're like, this is it. But I got into the text and I was like, uh-uh, I didn't have this. I don't, I don't have this at all. I felt like I knew what I was supposed to say, but I, I didn't. Because there was something else, something more profound going on in the text. I didn't understand, for example, what it meant for Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Now I've studied, of course, but I feel as if this idea, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus fulfilling the Sabbath, has implications for you and me. Implications that can totally change our lives. You see, let's start with this. When you think of Sabbath, what do you think about? Rest. For like me, what do you think about sleep and Netflix and stuff like that, right? Yeah, you think about all these kind of things. So we think about rest. When we think about Sabbath, great. If you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let me tell you something that you probably didn't notice. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, Jesus actually never rested on the Sabbath. He was always working. Think about it. We think about Sabbath and we think rest. Jesus, on the other hand, on the day of the Sabbath, actually wasn't resting. He was working. In fact, in John chapter 5, from verse 16 to 17. Verse 5, verse 16 to 17. I'm trying to look for the text. All right, good. So Jesus healed on the Sabbath again. And the Bible says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And what? I too am working. On the Sabbath. This is from Jesus. So he's not saying I'm putting the words in his mouth. He's saying, no, no, no. On the Sabbath. I am walking. Whereas we think about Sabbath and we think about rest. So where did we get this idea from? That Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. Because Jesus was walking. It's in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 10. It says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. <laughs> On it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town. So that was where the idea came from. They were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But again, we also read the Bible and it says, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And so how are we supposed to respond to this? So what's supposed to happen is, even though, for example, we're not supposed to, in quote, keep that law that was given to, those, to, to the Israelites, the principle behind it still remains the same and true. For example, you will not say because part of the Ten Commandments is that thou shalt not kill. 
And so we are no longer under the law. I should go ahead and kill. That's not the way it works. The principle remains. So it is the principle that we are following. And Pastor preached a sermon on this about two to three years ago. I was remembering the Sabbath. I think you should go ahead and listen to it. It's really, really good. However, today, I'm not here to come and say, oh, we should do rest on the Sabbath. That's not what I'm saying. That's not my point. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm simply saying this. That based on the evidence of the life of Jesus, that if all we think about Sabbath is supposed to be just a day of rest, then we have a narrow view of the Sabbath. If all you're thinking is, oh, on Saturday, I'm going to rest. That's, that's not the way the Bible presents the Sabbath. So again, so this is why we start getting very, very theological. Where was the Sabbath first mentioned in the Bible? Not Exodus. Where? Genesis chapter 2, actually. Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, from verse 1 to 3, the Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. The Hebrew word there. I know many of you don't like this. When preachers say, hey, the Hebrew word there, I'm going to do it today, all right? The Hebrew word there is Shavah. He stopped. He rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. First point to notice, God was the first person to keep the Sabbath. It wasn't actually man. This is one of the only laws that we find that God himself is actively doing it. He actually started it. God kept the Sabbath. Now, don't put up the picture here. Don't put up the picture here. Before we get to day seven, we have to get to day what? We have to start from where? Day one. So for us to understand day seven, we need to understand day one. So what did God do on day one? What did God create on day one? Quiz. That's why I said you should not put, you should not put it up. What did God do on day one? Light. is separated light and darkness. Right? Good. Oh, you guys are intelligent. What did God do on day two? Pastor Femi, they're not listening to you. They're not, they're not listening to your teachings. I don't understand. What did God do on day two? He separated the skies and the waters from the skies. And he says, what did God do on day three? He called forth the land. What did he do on day four? He created the sun and the moon and the stars. What did he do on day five? Sorry? No, no, not animals. Not, actually, what he actually created on day five were the fishes in the sea and the birds in the air. Animals were created on day six. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're bringing bring your biology into the Bible. I pity you. <laughs> Johnny, message to you. But anyways, God created animals. He actually distinguishes them from the fishes, right? And you see why very soon. You actually see why very soon. He creates the animals, land animals now. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He created land animals. <laughs> on day six, and he created human beings. And then on day seven, he rested. You see, the Bible is actually painting a picture here. Can you put the picture up? Many of you didn't notice this. Can you put the picture up? Is it there? No. What you notice about the days of creation is that there are three days of forming and there are three days of feeling. So day one, you see, it separated the light and the darkness. And on day four, it puts the sun to feel the light and it puts the moon to feel the night. On day two, he separated the skies above and the waters, the seas below. What does he create on day two? On day five. The fishes to fill it. And then he creates the birds to fill the skies. On day three, he creates dry land to come forth. What does he do on day six? Animals and man. And then on day seven, God rested. Here's the picture being painted to you. The picture of creation is actually the picture of... Um, the building of a house leading to the making of a home leading to the dwelling of a family. I will explain. The picture of creation is that of the building of a house leading to the making of a home leading to the dwelling of a family. So day one to three is the making of the house. Day four to six is the making of the home. I'm feeling it. So here's the thing. When you are building a house, you are building all the walls, you are building the windows, you are putting the roofs and all those kind of things like that. It's a house. But it is not a home until you start putting your chairs, until you start putting your pictures, until you start putting the kind of curtain that you want. It is not a home yet. 
But the point of building a house and making a home is not for making a home sake. The point is so that somebody can come and rest inside it. Are we together? And so when God was forming on day one to three and was filling on day four to six, the whole anticipation is for us to get to a point where God now comes to rest in the house that he has actually created. So the point of day one is to get to day seven. So Sabbath, therefore, is the goal of creation. Are we together? Sabbath all along was the goal of creation. The second thing you notice is this. In the story of Judge Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. You see, I've said it here before. The Bible doesn't always tell you things. It shows you. Especially in narratives. For example, if you read the Bible, you, you will never find a place where the Bible says, don't marry more than one wife. Do not marry more than one wife, do. But you will find it. But what the Bible does is to show you why you shouldn't marry more than one wife. Why? Every instance where somebody is marrying more than one wife, there is Wahala. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, that's polygamy pro max. You, you, <laughs> you know the guy? Like 300, 1,000 altogether. It never ends well. Therefore, you then see that story and you say, oh, I shouldn't marry more than one wife. But he's not going to tell you. He's going to what? Show you. And so there is something happening in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That the Bible doesn't necessarily say. It shows it to you. Now, when we go back to day one, and God said this particular thing. What do you know? How does day one always end? You say, and there was, even, there was evening and there was morning on the first day. Now, always notice patterns when you're reading the Bible. Day two, there was evening and morning, second day. Day three, same thing. Four, five, six. We get to day seven. Let's read it again. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Full stop. You don't find morning and evening indicating the end of the day. Why? Sabbath was never meant to end. Sabbath, originally, was not a day or date of rest. It was a state of rest. It was living in a constant state. Of rest. Sabbath was never meant to end. Day seven continued. And that was when God then rested in it and then brought Adam and Eve to do what? To rest in it. Why? Because there's no point in creating the perfect space if you're not sharing with anybody. Right? So the goal of Sabbath was never meant to end. And so Sabbath, you think about Sabbath and you think about Saturday. God is saying, I'm thinking about Sabbath, I'm thinking about Saturday all the way back to Monday. God is saying the whole week is supposed to be a Sabbath. So we read that God rested. But in John chapter 5, Jesus already said, in John chapter 5 verse 17, he said in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. That is, you see, my father has always been working. We read on Genesis 2, God rested. Problem. Right. So, right like, ah, so, Jesus, didn't you read your Bible? But no, Jesus wasn't wrong. God had always been, rest, had always been working. Gee, God rested. Yes. But what did he rest from? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, go back to read it. It says, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he created, on it he, on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God stopped creating. He didn't stop sustaining. He was still working. God, therefore, was resting, was working, even in rest. Let's do it a little bit. Maybe it's just God that is doing it. Let's, make it, let's, let's see what God, how Adam leaves this out. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to walk it and take care of it. That word, put him there. Do you know what that word is? It's noak. You know what noak means? Yes. I've been saying this since. Rest. So here's the picture. The Lord God took the man and rested him in the garden of Eden to walk it and take care of it. The goal of Sabbath is not necessarily to rest from your work. It is to walk from a place of rest. That's the point. That's where the Bible is going. 
It is not about, not just about resting from your work. It's about walking from a place of rest. And this is how the Lord of the Sabbath then fulfills it. Why was he walking? He was saying, no, I'm already living in a state of rest. There's no need for me to take one day to actually rest per se. I am constantly walking. I am the one that is showing you the original plan of the Sabbath. I am not resting from work. I am walking from rest. That's what Jesus was doing. Because he then was the Lord of the Sabbath. He is then inviting people into that rest. The same way God was making Adam to enter into his own rest. And he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 29. What does he say? He says, come unto me, all you that are weary. And even I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest. For your souls. The plan of God for your soul is for you to be at rest. Even if your surrounding is not at rest. The plan of God for your soul is to, in such a way that the source of your rest is not anything here on earth. You see, if you have a light bulb that is plugged to a socket, once they take light from that particular socket, the light bulb goes off. But God's intention is that the source of the rest should not be any, any, any energy, source of energy here on earth. It should be from heaven, such that if they take the light in your surroundings, they are still connected. The light bulb of your rest will still keep on shining. And that is why when Jesus was at the point, Jesus was walking upon the waters. The Bible says there was a great storm. And he came walking upon the waters. Many times we think that the miracle is just that Jesus was walking upon the waters. I think there are more miracles in that text. The fact that there was a storm that was shaking a ship that couldn't shake one man. That's a miracle. Why? Even though his surrounding was not at rest, he was at rest. Why? Because the source of his rest was not here. The source of his rest was up there. The storm could shake his surrounding, but the storm could not shake him. That is how... He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was plugging to a rest that was not earthly. He was plugging to a rest that was heavenly. Tell your neighbor, plug into his rest. If that person is not answering, tell the other person, plug into his rest. Plug into his rest. I am not saying that bad stuff would happen. Bad stuff happened, right? I'm not saying you will not be scared. I'm not saying you will not be sad. I'm not saying bad things will not happen to get you anxious. I'm just saying that for many of you, there is another kind of unrest that you have. That kind of unrest, it cannot be explained. It can only be experienced. You know what I'm talking about? It's like it is different. Even when things are going fine, you are still not fine. Even when this, your salary week, if they pay it today, if they pay the money today, Tomorrow, last. You can be happy today. 24 hours. You are panicking again. You are not living in a place of rest. You are panicking. Concerning your kids. You are panicking. My husband. You are panicking. You are constantly, even when there is nothing wrong. There is an unrest you are feeling. It's not an unrest in your body. It's not the tiredness you feel in your body. It's the tiredness you feel in your soul. You can't, you can't describe it. You're only experiencing it. And so that's why when your friends are talking to you and you say, what's wrong with you? Like, legit, you actually don't know. Because you can't explain it. The Lord of the Sabbath has come to deal with that kind of rest. That kind of unrest. Not that you'll be anticipating Saturday because you just want to just lock yourself and just do anything. No. Or that you even be anticipating Monday. Because why? You want to walk from rest. You are confident. That is where God is taking us. That is the goal of the Sabbath. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 also shows us something. That I think is actually profound. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. The Bible says, And the Lord commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So, Sabbath rest for Adam was about going to pluck from a provision that has been made by the work of another person. Let me show that again. Sabbath rest for Adam 
was going for him to go and pluck and eat from the provision that has been made based on the works of another person. That is how Adam was living in rest. But we understand that Adam sinned then. And so he was sent out of the garden. And God then is looking for a time where he's going to bring the rest to his people. And so he calls Israel and he selects Israel to make them a picture of how Sabbath is supposed to be. And so by the time they also are approaching the promised land, Moses sent spies. He said, go into the promised land. Go and spy it. Because God had told them that that place is a land flow will make an honey. Just even spy it. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 23, this is what they said. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Pomegranates. Lord have mercy. And so just as you find with Adam that he was going to go and pluck and eat from a provision that they made based on the works of another person, you find Israel too. They are entering the promised land and they are plucking from a provision. They didn't plant that thing. God did. The fulfillment in the New Testament, guess what? You read it today. The disciples also were going through a grain field and then they also then went to pluck based on the works of another person. This is how Jesus is proven to be the Lord of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is that you are resting based on the provisions that is based on the works of another person. Isn't this the gospel? That we ourselves are experiencing rest in God's provision based on the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You must have heard it said that you are saved by grace, not by works. But yes, you might have been saved by grace, but it is based on the works of another person. Somebody walked so that you can experience rest. So Sabbath is actually about God's divine provision. That God is divinely providing for you. And so if you understand the Sabbath, is that you understand the God who is your provider. That you understand that your salary is not your source and your sustenance. That God is your source and God is your sustenance. What this means is this, that even when your work is not going the way it is supposed to go, they're not paying your salaries, you understand. It is God that is supplying me, it's not my boss. So when they don't pay, I'm still able to work faithfully because God will keep me. There's no reason to bother about my boss. God will provide for me. He will provide for me. So Sabbath then becomes the ground for faithful work. You need a reason to work hard? It's the Sabbath. The Bible says when you work, do it as unto who? As unto the Lord. Why? Because he's the one that can pay you. See, if you are doing any work that it is your boss that can pay you, you are not working in the line on Sabbath. The kind of work you are supposed to do, you are supposed to work out so much that when they pay you, you say, thank you very much. But my reward is really in heaven. You can't pay me. Or maybe you are seeking for promotion. Because I just want to promote, I want to promote it. If you understand that you are working from a place of rest, your source is not in that promotion. Your source is in God. So even if they do not give you, you can be sad. But that storm cannot get inside of you. Why? Because there's a rest on the inside. That is why you can then try again. Because here's the reason why people don't try. Because they failed one time. But Sabbath tells you that you are fine. And so you can try again. You can fail. Try again. Why? Because God is the one providing for me anyway. Sabbath then becomes grounds for resilience. Because it's, that's the reason why you are resilient. Because no, no, God is providing for me. So I will work hard. So I will try again. And again. And again. When you see the non-Christian trying over and over and over and over again until he succeeds, it's a shame on us because he's walking in line of what you are supposed to walk in line with. Sabbath is your own grounds for resilience. Sabbath is your grounds for contentment. That even if I say, you know what, I don't want to be a CEO. I just want to be happy. And what if this thing happens? God will provide. And legit, he will. Many of you, your bank, your, your bank statement doesn't make any sense. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of life you are living. 
your bank account is not the one funding it. It can't. You've received help. Why? Because God provides. And now we've gone full circle. Sabbath then becomes the grounds for taking a day of rest. Why? Because you know that even if I don't work today, God is the one providing for me. Why do we work so hard? You are constantly working. No day off. Just working and working and working. The answer is this one financial security. You want to be secure. If history is any indication, financial, financial security, ultimate financial security is a myth. It doesn't exist. Anything can happen. Ask Rome. Wealthy? Stable? Where are they today? Nowhere. Ultimate financial security doesn't exist. And so you are working so hard for something that you're not even sure of. Sabbath becomes the grounds for rest. And then you can say, Tommy, but if I stop working, I may not get what I need to get. Let me show you something. In Leviticus chapter 25, let me show you something. So God, God in Israel, God, God told them, give them commands. He said something to them. He said, take a day of rest in the week on the seventh day rest. He then said, on the seventh year, also rest. He then said, on the 50th year, also rest. He was then commenting on those laws. And he says in Leviticus 25, 18, 22. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your field and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? Can you relate to what he's talking about? When Pastor Femi will say, ah, you need to take a day of rest. And you'll be like, you don't understand what I'm going through. you like, take a day of rest. Who will provide for me? Listen to what Jesus says. He said, I will send you such a blessing. Pause. I can end here. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for how many years? Three! Meaning what? The work that you're supposed to, the average you're supposed to get based on your constant working, you will even get more than that because you took a day of rest. If you trust the Lord with your Sabbath and say, Lord, I will give you one day to actually focus on you, focus on my family, focus on what is important. God has promised, I will give you such a blessing. Why? Because you trust him to be your provider all along. That is what the Sabbath is about. It is that God is your provider. And so if you've read the text that we've been talking about, you see that there are actually two stories, isn't it? The one where the disciples are actually plucking from the grave fields. And the other one where there's this guy with the withered hand. And so the first section shows you Points to Sabbath, being points to what Sabbath points to that God is the one that provides. The second one talks about how God, Sabbath, is about restoration. It's about restoration. The text in the text, the guy comes to meet Jesus. His hands were withered. Not even for something to be withered, that's dried up. Meaning what? It was once alive. Jesus restored. That hand. By that miracle, Jesus was showing you that the work of the Sabbath is also the work of restoration. Let me show you. Do you remember when you read the Old Testament? Why was Jesus then give, why was God then giving them the Sabbath? He said, He said, rest, take one day to rest, so that your slaves can be refreshed. Take on the seventh year, let the land rest so that the land can be restored. He then said one more thing. He said, on the 50th year, on the year of Jubilee. So what happens in those days is that if you owe somebody money and you can't pay it back, you sell yourself to the person to work it until you are done paying. However, on the 50th year, on the year of Jubilee, even if you've not paid it back, you are free to go back home. You are restored back to citizenship and no longer a slave. On the year of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is about restoration. The kind of restoration that, see, the people that sold themselves to slavery, it was their fault, right? They were doing our own money. And here's the good news for you. You might be experiencing unrest in your life because you have made mistakes. True. 
You might be experiencing unrest in your life because of the mistakes and stupidity of somebody else. True. But Jesus, in being the Lord of the Sabbath, is also the Lord of restoration. You see, when Jesus was walking on the waters and there were storms around him, there were storms around him, but the storm could not get to him. Even though the surroundings were not calm, he was calm. The story doesn't end there. No. Jesus got into the boat and he said something to the storm. He said, peace, be still, meaning what? Rest. The Lord of the Sabbath is not just ready to grant you rest. He's ready to grant your surrounding rest too. The Lord of the Sabbath is not just ready to make sure that you are at peace. He also has the authority. He has a right. That thing that is giving you unrest, that source of your anxieties, that source of your fears, Jesus has a right to declare to them, peace be still. He has the power. Not just the power, but the right to do it. But Sabbath restoration comes at the cost. So imagine you are the person that the slave, the person sold himself to you. And then year 50 comes and he goes. Who will bear the cost? You. Sabbath restoration comes at a cost. It is also said in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus healed the guy that had withered hands. But that restoration came at a cost. The Bible says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot on how they might kill him. Sabbath restoration comes at the cost of death. Now, many of us are familiar with the crucifixion, isn't it? I know Jesus died for my sins. What many of us are not familiar with is the circumstances surrounding the crucifixion, the circumstances surrounding the resurrection. Let me show you. You see, Mark, as the writer of the book of Mark, seems to be obsessed with the idea of the Sabbath. In fact, when he wants to present Jesus to the public, he makes sure that Jesus was ministering when? On the Sabbath. And when he's about to describe the circumstances surrounding the crucifixion, in Mark chapter 15 from verse 42 to 43, the Bible says, it was, so they had crucified Jesus, all right? They had crucified Jesus. And so this is what is coming up after the crucifixion. And just had died, they had given up the ghost. He said, it is finished. The Bible says, it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So they brought Jesus' body down just before the Sabbath. Go to Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 2. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Solomon was passing so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, Jesus after just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. That was referring to the resurrection. So at the crucifixion, Jesus was crucified just before the Sabbath. And he rose immediately after the Sabbath. And so his death was on the Sabbath. And so the cost of death that he paid, the writer of Mark still wants you to know that the work that Jesus did, literally, he did it on the Sabbath. Here's the challenge to you. If the Lord of the Sabbath has paid the price for your rest, for your unrest, you shouldn't be walking in unrest anymore. He has paid for it. He has paid for it. So Jesus rose on the first day. Early on the first day of the week. And then you can then say, I hear what you're saying to me. I hear you. But there's still so much pain in the world, isn't there? There's still so much unrest. There's still so much unrest around us. Still so much cause for anxiety. So much cause for fears. The good news is still in this text. Remember when we were talking about Sabbath, the original one? We said that Sabbath 
is the goal of creation, isn't it? We then said that day one anticipates day what? Day seven. Day one anticipates day seven. So in the old creation, in the old creation, God started creating on day one so that you can anticipate day seven. In the new creation, Jesus rose on day one so that you can anticipate day seven that will never end. That's why the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, 22 to 25, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in his temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives his light and the Lamb it is, and the lamb is his Lamb. The nations will walk by his light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. See, I grew up in um, Ilorin, and this is what happens. Once it's 9 p.m., what that do you say? Go and shut the gates. You know why? The day has ended. But here in Revelation, the day seven that God promises that you are actually anticipating, He says the gate will never be shut. For what? There will be no night there. Listen. There is a Sabbath that is still coming. You might then say, when will the earthquake stop? When will the poverty stop? When will the injustice stop? What is God doing about it? Behold, I tell you what he has done and what he will yet do. He rose on day one that is going to end so that I can guarantee a day seven that is coming that will never end. Rest is coming. The Lord of the Sabbath will one day restore all things. If you believe you can just rise to your feet. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.